Greetings, outcasts, freethinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first-hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. I feel like I'm still cutting my teeth in this realm of truth-seeking and reality exploration. This podcast was conceived to not only give important and hopefully compelling conversations such as we strive for a public forum, but also as a school of sorts for me. My impetus for inviting guests onto the melt is first and foremost so that I might learn more in a subject or field of study that I feel like I have many gaps to fill in as far as my deeper understanding of it. This forum gives me the luxury of being able to connect with unique people and prompt them to guide us through their research, worldview, and experiences. Today's guest is someone who has been at this for over 20 years and whom I feel is further along a similar path as I consider myself to be on. His content is excellent and his guests are superb. I heard about him after coming into contact with Emily Moyer because they used to host a show together a few years back. I start off this chat with podcaster and experiencer Randy Moggins today by asking him about his origins and how it got him to where he's at today. Yeah, so what got me here was basically what began many, many, many decades ago as a kid. Um, I had a lot of encounters when I was a child with what we'll just call supernatural entities. I found myself in the middle of some very interesting vignettes along the way that involved 
we'll say projects in a very broad sense, because when people talk about projects now, most people frame it in terms of MK Ultra or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fact of the matter is that under Project Talent from the 1960s onward, um, they were culling children, which they had profiled. In some cases, I'm given to understand we were profiled coming in, in other words, pre-birth. And that this has a much broader perspective. So having said that, I had on the surface this normal life that I lived, and I had this other side of my life, which was sort of a parallel life. And it took a long time to actually begin to pull them together into one seamless worldview. For a long time, I didn't understand myself. I certainly didn't understand what all this trauma was, what all these memories were, what transpired in my early life, some of which is not pleasant. Um, and then going forward, just attempting to live a normal life. And in the midst of all of that, I acquired skills along the way and was given opportunities to do what was effectively public presentations on many different platforms, including um, I apprenticed, apprenticed, uh, interned uh, in a public radio station when I was in high school. So I was exposed to broadcast radio as a teenager. I did DJ work. I have been on FM. I've been on AM radio. This really started in 2003 when I went on shortwave radio uh, in spectrums of the Christian patriot movement, mm -hmm. or what are now known as the MAGA people. Yes. Um, that movement was a revelation in a way because th there was a lot of grassroots truth in what they were trying to get at, and at the same time, there's a lot of distortion in that movement. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of predators, as in all movements, mm -hmm. as in alternative media today, there are predators on the fringes of things who opportunistically attempt to move and distort the narrative into something they then can weaponize, which is what you have seen occurring in the United States um, since 2016, at least. Yeah. We're really going back even further to the early 2000s with the Tea Party movement mm -hmm. and things like that. So that led me into radio, which led me into podcasting. I put up a, an RSS feed in 2004. I coded it based on what um, Adam Curry and Dave Weiner were doing at the time in setting up RSS feeds. There was no WordPress at that point. There was no real standard platform. So we were running web 1.5 at that juncture and you had to code it into the website. Mm -hmm. And so that was the early beginnings of podcasting. We continued on shortwave radio with the network I was with uh, until 2006, 
2007, at which point one network was taken over by Homeland Security and the other network just became too expensive to continue on. And so we moved to um, streaming and uh, C-band satellite radio. And that's where it kind of went until 2010 when that was, that was a show called The Threshing Floor. That was biblical prophecy. Mm-hmm. And did that until 2010. I had um, what I guess you would say an epiphany about what I believed. I sort of walked away from what was considered at that time alternative Christianity, sort of declared myself a Gnostic, and then opened up the whole wide scope. And that's where Off Planet Radio came in. It was originally called Exotica. And that was actually a show that was owned by the network I was on. And I did maybe 10 of those. There's maybe three or four of them in existence that I know of now. And then I transitioned it into uh, off-planet radio. I transitioned. (laughs) Before transitioning was cool. There you go. So I'm post-transition now. (laughs) And yet you kept all of your organs intact. I did. I did. In fact, I added a couple. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Yes, we've got organs dangling out there in the ether sphere. So here we are. In 2023, I would have never guessed we'd be sitting here doing this. I would have never guessed I would still be doing this. I didn't think this whole game was going to run this long. Yeah. And it's running faster than ever right now. Time has sped up immensely. Yeah. Absolutely. It does feel like the the Smith-Munt Act had a lot to do with uh, just the whole propaganda machine ramping up. And I think that that's one of the things that has kept the actually added fuel to the alternative media fire, because there, there has to be some degree of pushback against that. Force counter force. Yeah. Yeah. And somewhere during the off planet media or off planet radio phase, you started co-hosting with, or Emily Moyer started co-hosting your show with you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Emily fell in. She came in. Oh, time just. I I had a co-host for several years who was very dear to me, named Chris Holly. And Chris Chris Holly was a much older lady. She was a paranormal researcher and writer. She was a journalist, mm. and um, Chris was also an ex-project person, although. It took her a long time to come to terms with that. But she was definitely an experiencer of the paranormal. That was her trade, was basically documenting um, UFO encounters. Uh, A specific group of people who were regularly abducted, who, as it turns out, in making contact with these people, I came to find out were also part of Montauk. Uh-huh. Chris grew up and lived on Long Island. Wow. wow. Long Island. Long Island. Long Island. <laughs> and uh, she actually had her final encounter with the forces that are 
on a um, a portion of Long Island near a base um, three years before she passed away, mm. which left her extremely ill and disabled. Um, her and her sister were both experiencers. And Chris resisted that. She would get angry with me when I'd tell her. But I think eventually she realized that. So uh, Chris passed away in 2019. Mm. Emily came in, I want to say, maybe 2009, around 2009, 2010. Not a little later than that, 2000. I'm so terrible with this. 2014, actually. And that started with an interview I had when I was doing TV at the time, and I had her on as a guest. And then uh, I brought her on as a producer and a co-host. And the goal with, with her was basically to mentor her. And that was an association that had its time and then as you can see now she's she's gone off and and i've gone off and we we um sort of do our own different things i basically left because i was preparing to do this book in 2019 i started the eye of the needle series on halloween night um 2019 it sort of took off and the idea of starting to write the book was already percolating then that, of course, morphed into um, what eventually became the receivers as I realized that uh, some of what I was communicating wasn't exactly coming from me anymore. Mm. And in fact, it wasn't before either. So it's taken on a lot of different levels along the way. I now have, I have a multitude of co-hosts now <laughs> that are non-physical. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, where did that, you said the receivers, did, I mean, is there a certain set of, for lack of a better term, entities or beings that you're sort of channeling this information from, or is it more of a collaboration? We can call it channeling. I've sort of resisted that. It's not channeling in the strict sense because <clears throat> technically channeling is 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 trance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's no trance involved with this what it more approximates is automatic writing okay and i became aware of it oddly enough during lockdown i bought an ipad mm -hmm. and an apple pencil yeah yeah and i discovered there were apps out there that would let me hand write mm -hmm. in them and while i can certainly adequately handle the keyboard um, there's something very natural about, I almost always have a pen in my hand, a stylus. <laughs> um, there's a tactility to it. Yes. What began to happen was and it went from taking notes to writing entire sections of text. In my handwriting, which the software then transfers into, you know, iReadable ASCII text that we then can put into word processing and things like that. And I did this for about six months, and I realized that the, some of the materials, I was like, I'm not sure I even agree with this. Mm. Um, it, 
it isn't me in the sense that it's my consciousness guiding it. It is me being open to what I've always understood to be guides. Um, and I've experienced that since I was a child. I've been very aware of what I call my aspect self, which is a female entity known as Audra. Mm. And Audra is probably my female self expressed as an aspect in another dimension. So, I, you know, it's funny. We take children and we turn off their imaginations. We tell them that you're nuts if you talk to yourself. And yet most children inherently have this sense of communication with something that's beyond themselves. They have imaginations for a reason because first off, we denigrated the meaning of the word imagination. We think it's false, it's made up, it's mm -hmm. just, you know, swirling neurons in the brain when in fact what it is is this contact to the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're talking really about being a conduit. A co I would say a conduit in the sense that they work with my consciousness. Right. It's 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 interactive. Mm -hmm. um, I find sometimes it's there's concepts that I have to translate into a language that I can understand, because some of this comes through when I'm writing. Not even you would say non-verbally if it was spoken. So what would you say if you get a concept that's both like a visual flash? I call them download packets. Mm. There's a concept and sometimes it's shown to me visually. And then I have to work through the imagery of what it is that I'm seeing, what I'm sensing. There's a sensing that comes into this as well. Mm -hmm. And this is where having a, a, a pencil or a pen or something to work with your hands comes in because it grounds you. And, um, so a lot of times what I am doing is I'm dealing with concepts that I may have some facility with, but basically I don't have details and the details begin to fill themselves in. There are times when I sit down to write and sometimes these will take me week, 10 days to write. Um, and they will go back and start filling in in paragraphs above it. I have to hit, you know, open up some space in the editor and allow them to flow in because now they're filling more information. And some of this is because I'm in time and they're not in time. And time-based communication requires processing in our cognitive facilities. So a lot of times it's simply a matter of me having this working in the subconscious mind long enough to begin to bring out the expression if that makes sense. Sure. Totally. So, strictly speaking, it's not channeling. I'm not rejecting that term, although I have been very critical of certain channels over the years. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, it's fair to say this. When I was 17 years old, I began reading Jane Roberts' The Seth Material. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, those, I still read Seth that was some of the most comforting things I ever read because for the first time somebody was talking about things that I intuitively understood, but didn't have a language or a structure for. 
And um, I will say that I, you know, I've I've gone through um, Barbara Marciniak's The Pleiadians, mm-hmm. um, Bringers of Bringers of the Dawn, again another benchmark book. Barbara's lost the narrative over the years since I believe it's just the quality of what's communicated now through the Pleiadians, as they call she calls them, isn't there anymore. But those those early books are. Um, so this is a form of mediumistic communication and it's been present with us forever you know we're talking as a race we're talking to ourselves from the other side of what we call the veil mm-hmm. i mean the, the bible you know it's so funny because christianity is so stridently against mediumistic communication when in fact her own holy book is channeled. Literally, some of it is channeled. Um, in some places, it was scribed. Um, some of the prophets used scribes. Some of them wrote themselves. But a lot of it was transmitted orally over time. And uh, it was, if you, you know, if you read Ezekiel or the book of Revelation, I mean, it's either that or what the hell were they smoking? Um, <laughs> it's interesting because a lot of what you're talking about is child's mind. It's beginner's mind. It's it's being uh, malleable. And that's the thing that that you're talking about that happens to children is that they then they become calcified. Their, mm-hmm. their perspective like narrows because yeah. that makes it convenient to control. So what apparently in my situation, when I was having these experiences that you're talking about, my mother would say, and I predicted deaths in the family. I had imaginary friends. I had this, this very porous connection with the veil and with reality. My mother said, if you tell people this, they'll take you away from me. So what does that do that terrifies a child? Because suddenly they think that this thing that is very natural and very intuitive is, uh, can be weaponized. I did this repeatedly when I was a kid, I would tell my mom, I, I, I could hear people's thoughts. I knew what they were thinking. I remember being in church with my parents one Sunday and my mother always dressed for church. Mm-hmm. And she was up talking to one of the church ladies after church. And I might have been, I don't know, somewhere between five and seven years old. And I walked up and I stood there for a while. And finally, I tugged on her sleeve and I said, she thinks your dress is ugly. And my mom just (laughs) kind of shushes me away. Um, That's a silly little notion. But the truth of the matter is that I was getting the impression of what this person was thinking. Why I got it, I don't know. It's not all that meaningful. Yeah. yeah. But there were other things of being aware on a broader sense of the type of world we lived in. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I know that Laudas said this for a long time. We knew coming in what we were coming into. Absolutely. I mean, I was shown, and when I say shown, I knew. I got confirmation every step along the way that in my lifetime, I was going to live to see what a lot of people refer to the end of the age. The 
shifting of an age. And everything in my life built up to this. I had mentors who taught me some of the more, uh, I guess you would say, occult teachings. Mm -hmm. um, I was given books that were not mainstream to read. I had an understanding of certain kind of advanced theological and mystical concepts, including, I guess, what you call a magic. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of it as magic. Then I, I look back on it now and I realize, like you said earlier, children are wide open. This is why, by the way, programs go after them. Exactly. Yes. They go after them because of the raw material and they can mold that. And they use all kinds of methods, everything from very subtle types of indoctrination right up to the most sadistic, sick shit you could think of in order to harness this innate ability that children have. And they're also observing what children are capable, capable of doing. So if you have a specific talent or a specific proclivity yeah. for something that will be um, bolstered and mm -hmm. encouraged and utilized. Did you have, when you were a kid, did you have anybody that you could go to with this stuff or were you just kind of floating on your own? No, no, I, I kept very quiet about it. Mm -hmm. um, my mom kind of knew. In fact, she kind of, she kind of championed this and she bought me for Christmas one year, what was called Kreskin's ESP. Mm -hmm. Yes, I remember Kreskin. She was very aware that I had certain psychic gifts and she sort of went that way herself. But mm -hmm. again, you know, she was coming from a very evangelical background where again, most of this was verboten. And on, it's weird because my background is on that, on my mother's side of the family. Um, they were very, very fundamentalist Christians. My father's side, much more liberal and Freemasonry. Mm. <clears throat> Freemasonry plays into a lot of this as well. Um, I have memories of being on the altar of a Freemason temple when I was very young and some things that went along with that, there was certain types of ceremonies that were done. Again, there's ways that they entangle people. Yeah. You're profiled from birth. They know what bloodlines you're born, exactly. born into. Yeah. I was going to say that, you know, this is the cautionary tales about, um, the sins of the fathers and the oaths that are taken yeah. mm -hmm. and how they're passed on from generation to generation. So I wound up being a very resistant personality. I wound up being, uh, I won't say anti-religious, but certainly by the time I was 14, I had basically told the church to shove it. Um, and I was approached, as I was told I would be three times, to join Freemasonry, and I rejected it each time. 
despite the fact that there were promises that came with that of success in business and things mm-hmm. like that. That's how you build a business network. Yeah. Um, my father had a pretty successful business. A lot of his business came from associations and the things that go along with the accoutrement of, of um, the brothers in the lodge. And so, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a mixture of background there that um, it's taken me decades to fill in some of the pictures. I finally, in the last five years, identified one of my handlers as somebody that I can demonstrably know was involved in my life and tracing it backwards and understanding who was connected to who and who these people were in my life, in some cases, freaked me out very much. could imagine, yeah. So, you know, obviously I wasn't good material. Um, I was not adaptable, I was not cooperative, and I was basically not gonna be singled out to have an ultra successful life and that's fine, you know. Um, <laughs> you you know, weren't a good decision. into the system. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You that know? probably spared you. Yeah. Yeah. Lot. I mean, this is basically the Luciferic system. Mm-hmm. You know, we associate that to Luciferianism, Satanism. They're very separate things. Mm-hmm. But in terms of how they function, they basically function off of the lowest impulses of the human nature in terms of you know, how they control us. Absolutely. They control us, first of all, by a sense of lack, a sense that materially we require this system in order to sustain ourselves. Yes. On every level. Well, and that's why they need so many players, because it's a low-frequency energy. Mm-hmm. So they, need a, mind. they yeah. need a lot of people to be feeding into that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. these... These experiences, uh, children and projects and stuff like that, don't usually take place in a vacuum. Um, were your family military, or did they? Do you feel that they handed you over to these projects, or were they? Did they yeah, seem to be oblivious? Yeah, there's military aspects to it. Um, uh-huh. I strongly suspect that what happened after World War II is they took advantage of the technology that IBM had given first to the Nazis. Mm-hmm the Hollerenth cards and the early mainframe computers to begin profiling people and keeping very good records. Now that runs in parallel with the databases that are running in the lower astral, which they're connected to because they're, they're dark occultists and make the distinction with that because, you know, not all that is a cult is necessarily dark. Sure. Sure. So, Family bloodlines, ties, um, oaths, vows, military, the fraternal orders, and just, you know, pure opportunity. I mean, these projects had this, I've heard it called many things. I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, a writer who unfortunately died too young named Danny Casalardo, who was investigating the Promise computer system back in the 80s. And he called it the octopus. Mm. You know, and if you can imagine a school of octopi and how they're all able to interconnect 
that's kind of what you've got. You've got a school of octopi that are creating tentacles within tentacles within. It becomes very complex. So tracing it back is a prescription for madness. You know, I what I came to understand was that there were a lot of things that I I don't have the time in my life or the emotional space anymore to want to be able to continue going through it. So, you know, I've had a great life and I've done it in spite of the system, as have many people. And I leave it at that. Yeah, it takes a lot of real estate mm-hmm. mentally to be able to navigate every branch of all of these octopi. And I, th- I think there comes this point where you just have to call it and say, okay, I understand what all of this is leading to and how much energy am I going to f- continue to feed it? Because I do think that, and we've talked about, Chris and I have talked about this before with yeah. other people. Some people get off on the fear yeah, they do. Some people get off on the fear porn, and well, and I think- there's a there's a sense of entitlement and specialness to it. I hate to say that there are sincere people that have done great work in this space in exposing projects, MK Ultra, MK Delta, uh, Looking Glass, uh, Monarch. It goes on and on, and I'm grateful to them. And in the early years of my show. I spent a lot of time and energy exploring this and exposing it. Mm-hmm. It comes back around in a natural way now when I'm on hiatus right now, so I'm not actively doing shows. But this does circulate in and out of the conversation as well it should. Mm-hmm. But to continue to continue to labor in that was, first off, it was becoming mentally unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And it was also feeding something very dark. Absolutely. Because the more we talk about it, the more we give it power. There's a point where it's exposure. And then there's another point where we're simply feeding this thing. We're feeding more imaginations. Yeah, totally. One of the things that Shane and I noticed was that uh, how many people came out of the woodwork with 20 years and back after Corey Good became well-known. Yep. And... I interviewed some of these people, some of them, again, very sincere. Uh, I think we understand that, that a lot of what went on in projects were simulations, that the 20 years and back was simply that, as was Project Looking Glass. Project Looking Glass was not technology. It was simply humans that they managed to harness to be able to do very long-term remote viewing into very specific targets. And that window closed for them in 2010, really. They basically, you know, the the programs went third eye blind right before the beginning of the, what we would call the dawning of the age 2012 event. Mm -hmm. They were terrified by this. And this is, again, the timeline that we step through now comes from that. You know, everything that we have been through since 2012, but especially uh, I, I place it at 2017 forward as being throwing everything they've got at this to stop what's occurring 
in terms of mass human consciousness and awakening. It's not a mass awakening in, in, in the sense that everybody's going to, everybody's going to, what is it, ascend. Yeah, you're going to float on clouds. It's not like that. But this awakening has begun. It's, it's been in process for a long time. For sure. Um, certainly, you can trace it back to what happened back in the 1960s and forward. So we're well into something uh, which is humanity beginning to look at itself and realizing that they've been programmed, they've been controlled, they've been herded, they've been hunted, they've been slaughtered, and the ripples across the stream of human consciousness now are exactly what you talked about earlier, you know, this 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 counterforce, force counterforce. And that's where we're at. There's a pushing. The eye of the needle is basically the spiral that we're in right now, which is the compression cycle that began in 2017. And that cycle is now reaching its apex. We will basically hit the final tunnel of this spiral in 2024 a lot of things are going to happen in the next year that are determined going to determine what decisions we make collectively and individually uh very quickly to go back on the receiver material yeah um, yeah uh, that was a long yeah. rant wasn't it no no I thank love god it. yeah <laughs> rant away um is this in the form of something, is it like a continuing narrative? Uh, and is it sort of in a prophetic, of a prophetic nature? And would you say it was more like transcribing visions as opposed to uh, channeling material? It is actually prophecy in the best sense of the word. I've called it foreshadowing. Um, I've called it prophecy. I... People don't, and this is an area that I had a lot of interest in. I was, um, I studied prophecy for a long time. I obviously studied it from the, the Christian viewpoint, but I also looked at other visionaries um, along the way, Nostradamus being obviously one of them, but there were others as well within what you would call the mystery schools. So, it is foreshadowing, it is foretelling, which is what prophecy is. It's if this, then that. But it also has some benchmarks, um, what I sometimes refer to as temporal markers along the way. In other words, there are very specific constraints of time because we are creatures of time in which we operate. and. I studied prophecy formally. I actually, I actually was um, ordained as a minister in a school of the prophetic. That was I, that was in 2000, 2003, probably. That was really at the height of my involvement with what I guess you would call evangelical charismatic Christianity. And I had a very good teacher who taught me a lot. And again, when you look at the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, you know, they're, they're, they're psychic gifts. They're gifts of healing. 
their gifts of um, uh, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. In other words, going up to somebody, laying hands on them and having a knowing about them. Mm-hmm. And I did this, I saw it. You know, it's just no different than me hearing in my head the lady that didn't like my mom's dress, as as the example. So uh, we all have these gifts. I mean, there's nothing special about one person functioning in it. It's just these these are the these are sort of the outliers right now, and it's getting wider. This is what terrifies what we call the controllers. So did I answer your question? Yes, it is prophecy in a sense. Sure. It is very much prophecy, yes. So what it, Which means it can also be wrong. Prophecy is conditional. Yeah, prophecy is from a certain, it's, and people forget this, it's from a certain time space sort of uh, intersection. Like mm-hmm. from that point the, yeah. where it was prophesied is what, it's kind of what it's good for, <laughs> but anything yeah. could happen. So much could happen. Timelines could change events. Being conscious of the prophecy itself could change the out- outcome. Exactly. Of it. Yeah. 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 It's like quantum physics. The act of interacting with it changes it. Exactly. Which is kind of the point. Mm-hmm. The point of it really is to rec- direct the consciousness to a specific point and then allow what humans are going to do to affect that. Exactly. And to allow it to affect us. Because there's a feedback loop that occurs in terms of causative events, mass events, and things like that, which then change. Look at what happened over the last three years. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Look at how much the world has changed. That's yeah. not all social engineering. Yep. Well, and I think that that's part of uh, this whole time period that we've been in is, you know, one thing that I've heard is that these, this predatorial race was shocked at how compliant the masses were, that people were going along with the lockdowns and Mm -hmm. the masking and Mm -hmm. the jabbing and all of this. So I think the, the push and pull of that is that they had no anticipation of what locking people in their homes was going to do and, and taking people out of the workforce was going to do that. That was really giving people an opportunity to pause a be with their families, B do research, C dream and sleep Mm -hmm. maybe to a degree that they hadn't in decades for some folks. So I think they couldn't control that aspect of this period. And that has what has probably created this mass awakening is that there are some people who are out of that rat race for a moment where they go, what the fuck have I been doing for the past 30 years? It it, it worked both ways and either way it's fine because again, uh, some people went through horrible depressions, had nervous breakdowns. That's actually, in the grand scheme of things, healthy. Because it forced people to deal with themselves on an existential level that they had never been forced to deal with before. Because the system as they knew it, overnight shut down. I mean, how weird is it to walk outside in the middle of the day 
there are no planes. There's no traffic. I used to walk around, there was no people. Oh, there'd be a few mask wearers walking around, but you know, essentially the world became very quiet for a while. And I think they made some strategic gambles on this program. Mm -hmm. They ran, because they're materialists, they run things by numbers. So they may be looking at how compliant people were, but they're still very concerned about the fact that there was a pretty wide margin of people that didn't go along with the program. Exactly. Especially when we got to the place where they wanted to do a clinical trial of a new medicine on, you know, 8 billion people in this world. Yeah, the fuck up, I think the big fuck up was two weeks. I think mm -hmm. that was the first error that they mm -hmm. made by saying, oh, two weeks, this is only going to last for two weeks. I think that's what freaked people out because a lot of people were like, okay, I could go two weeks, not go yeah. to work for two weeks. Yeah, I I was out of work for two and a half, almost three months. I was considered what non-essential <laughs> <laughs> little did they know it was um you know when you look at all of the laws all of the rights that they stepped on and transgressed yeah people were pretty compliant through most of it but it did much like what happened in 9 11 2001 it's a very similar program, mass events, you know, mm -hmm. there's a whole, there's a whole segment that the receivers, we talk about mass events and the effect that they have on consciousness and they're engineered. Sometimes they're engineered outside of time too. And, um, so they made some strategic gambles based on their data and depending on how you view it, it was very successful. And it was successful on both sides of the fence because there were people who I think were already straddling the line and basically were pushed over it. And see, they think they play numbers games. They play large numbers games. Mm -hmm. They want to control eight or nine so-called billion people on this world, separate, complete subject. But um, that's not required. That's not for, required for what's happening. Because the truth of the matter is that a tipping point is 3 to 5% of a population. Mm -hmm. And I've said for a number of years now that we surpassed that long ago. Oh, yeah. That we're, at, we're way past the tipping point. And what happens within the realm of human consciousness now is that um, it will just continue because of the field effect to leak out into the general populace. So conversations I would have had on my show with guests and with people that listen to the show, I'm suddenly having with people in the street and people I work with, mm. you know, because I'm... I don't force my views on people, but I don't hold back when I'm asked. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
And I'm also sort of a contagion in my own right because I drop little things into people's brains and let them <laughs> kind of marinate in it for uh, a while. Yeah. And I'm very good at this. I mean, I understand my gift is to be able to verbally communicate with frequencies. So the words themselves are one thing and then the frequencies that come with the words are a whole other level. And that's why we're communicators. That's why we're doing this. I mean, this is, this is the gift that you bring to the table, the continuation of everything that, you know, we've been doing in this, in this, in this space is basically to go viral with this, this, the shift. I hate it. There's, there's sometimes there's cliche words and you have to use them. Yeah. But I think one thing, Randy, to keep in mind, and I'm sure you're well, well aware of this, is that outside of words is the frequency of thought. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it doesn't matter if someone at your place of employment has a dialogue with you, you are raising the frequency by your presence. Yes. And by dreaming and the sleeping consciousness. And so I think what has happened with a lot of people who are maybe sitting on the fence is no one wants to feel stupid. No one wants to feel like they've been taken advantage of or that they have been duped in any way. So I think there's a segment of the population who I've said for three years now who are always going to be like, yeah, I knew it all along. I just didn't say anything because I wanted to keep yeah. my job or I yeah. needed to get gas in my car. So, you know, I just don't want to, I don't want to have that conversation because it's too big and there's too much stuff going on. And I just don't have time to talk about that. And there's a, there has to be a, a level of grace for those people because if we sit back yeah. and admonish them and are like, well, none of this would have fucking happened if you would opened your mouth, then that kind of digs them in and entrenches their, their sense of, um, of righteousness. So yeah. I think wh where we've had to be is curiosity, just being curious and being willing to have conversations with people, open-minded, but not trying to foist our views on anybody. Yeah, I think the evangelical in me want to, you know, they always want you to preach the gospel. And mm -hmm. they, they, they want you to tell everybody about Jesus. And you see what that happens with that as it turns people off. And rightfully so, because what they're selling is a false gospel. You know, that was what I spent a lot of my years on shortwave telling these Christians. You, see, you don't even understand your own books. So to preach to people to beat them over the head with something that you believe is the truth isn't constructive. What's constructive is to frame things in a way that there's a drip that occurs. A melt. There you go. There you go. That's the melt right there. So you do the drip on them and eventually it saturates out into, I mean, gosh, I've watched things that you know, maybe even 30, 40 years ago, uh, I was talking about now become mainstream. So, you know, in a lot of sense, we're forerunners. We are basically shadowing, foreshadowing 
the shifts that are coming. And it will be the next generation on this world, in this realm, if we don't fuck that up, um, that can pick up the threads of all of this and, and, and you know, truly begin to make it work. Go ahead. I'm next, though. Okay. What I want to ask you about is the veil. Because I perceive that people who have passed through that veil are still able to communicate with us and perhaps have a different level of uh, reality or consciousness that they are experiencing maybe a 30,000, 40,000 degree uh, or foot view of the world. And that could potentially be like that whisper you hear in your ear. It could be mm-hmm. a generational mm-hmm. whisper of, you know, a great, great, great grandfather saying, look over there or don't mm-hmm. forget that. Uh, do you, do you perceive that part of this process that's happening is this kind of collective, um, energetic, uh, throb or echo that we're feeling so what the receivers are is basically among other things they are our future selves mm-hmm. and they have but the reason they're called the receivers is because they're kind of a they're like um you would put sometimes they put echo boys out in a bay um we put satellites up into near earth orbit, which they call space. There's a big subject. (laughs) um, So along the way, those frequencies kind of radiate out. uh, Our future selves are ourselves, our aspect selves, which are connected to our ancestral selves through this is very important and it's not talked about enough uh, connection with the ancestral lines. Um, They want to talk to us because we are resolving broken, we'll call them broken timelines for the sake of this discussion. Um, There are disjunctured timelines that have occurred because of the various resets and collapses that have occurred on this world going back much longer than I think we comprehend at this point. Um, The world is very old and humanity itself has been through many iterations of life here, as well as other worlds, other orbs, which are part of our our constellation. Um, This is by no means to promote space and spinning spheres and all of that. That's a separate subject. But But it is to say that Um, We are connected to something as an arc, which is both us now and in the past and the future. And that what we are trying to do is to heal these timelines. It's really difficult for me to to quite get this into words. Um, So Some you, of this, yeah, you, go ahead. You could call it like cellular memories. Yes, very or, much so. In fact, you anticipated what I was going to say because some of this is DNA, some of it is genetic. 
So it's cellular There's, memories and cellular precog. So it's going mm -hmm. in two different directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the cellular level is very important because this is this goes into why they are attempting to alter our biology and alter our genetics and take command and control over our genetics specifically. And this is one of the threads of the receiver material. It actually goes back much earlier, but I went much deeper into it as I was going through this, of beginning to understand exactly what DNA constitutes, and I'm not even talking about the junk DNA, I'm talking about codes that are transmissible in DNA across dimensional space and across what we call time. Because there is a linearity, there is a temporal aspect to all of this. And it's very hard to describe because, you, you know, on, on, on one level, <laughs> There is time, and on another level, there is not time. Time is, even within our, our, our realm that we live in now, is very fluid. And we are influencing time by our existence here. There's displacement of time. My God, I'm so honored to meet you, yes. Randy. Oh, it thank is you. Been... I'm, I'm honored to be on. It's yeah, been a great connecting with your you. guests, and I was kind of intimidated. You've had some oh, amazing, come on. amazing people. Oh, you're 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 a big boy in this game. You're you are very. I admire your work very very much. So Thank you. having Thank the you. chance to speak with you and connect with you has been extremely important to me. And I hope that some of the people listening who maybe haven't heard of your work uh, will explore it because it, de it definitely needs exploring. And you have decades of it to explore. Yep. So yeah. Thank yeah, you. Uh, just go to the website offplanetradio.com. You can start there. It's a good and place to start. Where's the book at? When's the book going to come out? <laughs> this is like, you know, I'm running out of time. That's, doesn't that sound weird? It's a book about running out of time, and I'm running out of time. Um, I'm, I'm at the place of compiling right now, compiling Fantastic. and indexing. Cool. And, you know, the farthest I can push this and even make it happen is going to be fall. Mm hmm but I think it'll come together real quickly. Cool. Are you uh, going to self-publish or do you have a publisher that's going to put it out? I don't know yet. Okay. I, you know, I, there's, I've been talking to people. I'm prepared to just simply, you know, self-publish it and get it out and then see what happens. The important thing is to put it out there. I, yeah. I don't, I'm not interested on being in on anybody's lists. Sure. Uh, what I'm interested in is putting this out there because the goal is to make this a concise brief of everything that I've done for the last 15 years mm -hmm. and to get these concepts out and get this communication out. Because yeah. all I want to do is I want to stoke the flames for some other people to come along and do this. Yeah, exactly. Pass the baton. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. you're an OG in this territory, as far as I'm concerned. Very thank you. Yes. Uh, so, enough prostrating at your feet. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been wonderful, and we definitely must do it again. 
Thank you so much. Yes. And we have an open door policy. If you ever make your way through Lawrence, Kansas, please come and, and Lawrence, visit us. Kansas. Please yeah. come and stay with us. We are in Kansas anymore. You are in Kansas. <laughs> we are. We're in Lawrence, Kansas. Just click your Gosh. red shoes together, your ruby slippers, and exactly. we'll be here. I was just listening to the band Kansas the last couple of days. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. Yes. Excellent. Getting ready. Yeah, yeah getting <laughs> ready, I guess. I love it. All Thank right. you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for being who you are and doing what you're doing. It's important. Thank you. We yeah. send you many blessings. Yes. And to you also and to all of you out there. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's be in touch and I will definitely let you know when this is going to come out. So. Thank you. All right. Thank all you. Right. Take care, brother. Good night. Good night. Farewell. I'm getting better about speaking in the mic. You did great this episode. Oh, thank you. Yes. And it was a great episode to do good on. It was. It was fucking magnificent. Yeah. It, it was. I was nervous and excited. I'm always a little nervous when it is a prolific uh, podcaster that we're speaking to, someone who has interviewed many, many, many hundreds of people over the past 15 plus years. So it was. he was very gracious and kind. Yes, absolutely. I have listened to many of his podcasts, so I knew that he was that, but you did not know that. So, and he's talked to some, some big cats too, some big people in this, in this realm for sure. So yeah. Uh, but it was, it was really nice. It was good to just sit and have a chat with him and not really have any agenda whatsoever. We just kind of went into it blindly knowing that I wanted to start off by just learning a little bit about him and letting the listeners know and then just getting into wherever it went, and it went lots of different places. Yeah, I, I was very amazed at uh, my psychic energy and ability to tune in with our guests has been a very high frequency late, lately. I've been able to to communicate and feel communication from the person on the other end. Mm. And that's been amazing, really cool. cool. And there was a few moments where he answered a question as I was ruminating and thinking about it. He answered it and, you know, it went, I love that type of flow mm -hmm. because it just shows that we're on the same wavelength, that we're, we're in the right spot with the yeah. right person. Yeah, exactly. And what I like about his uh, guests that he has on is that they're mostly people who have had firsthand experiences with a lot of uh, the subject matter that he talks about. And so the, I feel like they're the real deal. They're not somebody who's done research in a laboratory or somebody who's, you know, just has compiled a lot of stories about something. They, these are people that have experienced these um alien encounters for lack of a better word um mk ultra mind control lisa e he's had on several times nish um, as he mentioned in the in the conversation he had several episodes with emily moyer who's also experienced a lot of these things and he himself has so i feel like it's a he's compiling a library of of uh people's stories uh, about things that I find are very pertinent uh, in what is going on in our reality and aspects of that, that many people who do these kinds of shows don't think to 
to to go into, and he's really good about digging into that stuff. I am an experiential human, and so I really I deal with uh, my own personal experiences, and I try to k- kind of put pins in other people's timelines to see kind of where I was at in a specific time of life at that point that they're talking about. And when he was talking about Chris Hawley and her living in Montauk and having experiences in that area of Long Island, as we say on the East coast, uh, I, in the, you know, 20, 2009-2010 era, I was working as a photographer, a fashion photographer, and I got sent on a shoot. I was I would do events as well, and I got sent on a shoot to Montauk, and I went there by myself. And, you know, at one point, I was looking at a house on Montauk, and it's the farthest island in the, the stretch of islands in, in New York, and that um, section of New York, and it's a very trippy, weird, dreamlike, dream energy type of a place. You'd have to take several trains to get there from the city, and uh, it's probably about an hour and a half commute from Manhattan proper to get out there. And every photo I took when I was there has this kind of dreamlike energy quality to it. Uh, so again, I just love these, uh, parallel doors that get walked through at different times with, you know, these people that are in these, these, uh, same realms. It's super cool. Why didn't you end up living there? Well, uh, I ended the relationship that I was in at that point. It was someone that wanted to buy me a home on Montauk and uh, basically make me a baby machine. Oh, this dude. You, know, <laughs> you all know this dude. But and we'll, we'll... so I just decided, just for the sake of my privacy, I don't want to go into too much yeah, detail. Yeah, of course, of course. But... Um, I just decided it was one of those things where I thought, you know, this is not this is not where I need to be. This is not the life I envision that I see myself having. But you know, I keep something that keeps coming to my mind is when he was talking about the, you know, very far right Christian patriot movement uh space that he was uh kind of in and around at that period of time like a, kind of earlier than that period of time. And when we were talking about cellular memories and those folks wanting to re uh, like basically go back in time to a different era, a different time period. What I started to think when we were talking about this was maybe that is some cellular memory DNA thing that, you know, somewhere, somewhere in their generational past someone in their in that uh dna thread or dna strand is saying you know times were better back then and this is why we want to live in this time or this is why we want to recreate that time so it's this 
kind of utopian view of the 50s, Mm -hmm. grabbing that as a time period and thinking that time was, you know, the most perfect time post-World War II, the most perfect time in the United States for a specific segment of the population. So maybe it's that that unchecked, unreconciled or unresolved timeline that's rearing its head with those people. Sure. That makes sense. I never looked at it that way. I think every generation has that sort of nostalgia. I think because this society is socially engineered to change so quickly uh, before anybody has the remote chance of adjusting to all the change, that it it, um, therefore changes the very fabric of society and the way that we uh, interact with each other, or in this case, recently how we don't interact with, interact with each other plus it creates more of a generational spread yeah uh, between ages yeah. so that yeah so if there's the you the, the trail of breadcrumbs gets blown away before yeah. anybody has a chance to backtrack it's what i would call cultural amnesia yeah and the idea behind that is that because we live in an individualistic society, we don't live in a communal society, we don't want to look back to our elders and see them with any degree of respect and think, oh, these people have anything to teach us. And the, the, the arbiters of that ideology is this machine, this system that is constantly uh, selling um, this aspirational life and this aspirational idea that you always want the new trend, you always want the new look, you want because that's how they sell products. That's exactly. how they sell stuff. New stuff constantly. It has to be forward facing. You can't you can't sell butter churns or you can't sell things. You can't sell self sufficiency basically. So. You have to always have the newest gadget and the thing that fills the need that you never knew that you had in the first place. And then pretty soon your whole life is filled with those things. And it ends up being much more complicated than it was before you even realized that you had the needs that they're trying to fill. Yeah, it's I, I have this weird obsession with these rehab shows where they are rehabilitating people's homes and they what they what the common theme of these homes is I want a Victorian house but I want all of the modern conveniences inside that Victorian house (laughs) so they don't want to churn butter they want the decorative uh, butter churner in the corner of the room so it looks kitschy but they don't necessarily want to know how to do that skill yeah it's like the well how they name some streets. I was going to name our street, but I don't want to dox <laughs> ourselves. Um, that they are, they hint to a former time. They often trail, it's named trail or yeah. something pass or something like that. Like yeah. a different form of, of uh, transportation happened on those same same lines. Yeah. And it, and the street was probably named a hundred years ago yeah, of course. when it was that thing. Exactly. And or the trail was right. But they don't want to call it, you know, Instagram lane yeah. now. Yeah. They'll have Instagram <laughs> stadium probably somewhere. <laughs> well, there's Google city or whatever the fuck that thing is out in, uh, Marina del Rey. No, thank you. Yeah. Poo on that. 
Anyway, yeah. Randy was incredible. Um, he was. He yeah. is. He is incredible. He still is. Still, I imagine he's still incredible after our conversation. Yeah. He's probably <laughs> just as incredible now as he was 10 minutes ago. Exactly. I would imagine. And probably even more because he's constantly evolving yes. as we, we all are. For sure. Yeah. I think there's like the decay side of, of the physical body. But I also think, and this is something that we didn't really touch upon, that yes, the body decays, but the spirit or the soul uh, in its most perfect form doesn't decay. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the magic is understanding that. So, you know, keep the body, the temple in the best possible way uh, form and treat it the best you possibly can. But the real work is honing the spirit, honing the soul and doing what I consider God's work, which is being connected to the earth, being connected to each other, being connected to thine enemy, you know, seeing, seeing how we are all interrelated on this plane. I agree. We're all here at the same time for some magical reason. And that's what we have to keep reminding ourselves. Yeah, I I have a hard time um, thinking that there isn't some sort of trick, uh, mischievous aspect to the physical world. Um, because it does, or maybe it's just the people that take advantage of it, uh, the opportunists who try and trick us into thinking that that's all that there is. I really liked your pod take because that has been something that, you know, anytime someone, someone, you know, likens our reality to a film, I always get very uncomfortable and I used to do it myself, but typically more with the Truman show than matrix um but anytime i hear someone say it's like the matrix the world is like the matrix it's like no it's not the world is not like the matrix i understand what they're saying when they say that but again i think that there's a fear porn aspect of the simulation theory this idea that this is all none of this is real none of this is tangible none of this means anything what means something is that you're in a pod somewhere with some shit hooked up to your neck and you're just fuel for a battery I, but but what you were saying when you were talking about the human experience physical the physical experience that being a matrix i think that's a different form of that same narrative, but there's something um, richer to what you're saying because it's still putting the body in the story. Yeah. Well, the body is the, is the avatar is this, this suit that our soul is wearing to do, to navigate the physical world. So, right. you know, I always, there's so many plot holes in simulation theory. We barely be, begun to even dip our toe into it tonight, but, and he didn't really address my, my take on it, but, uh, but we always seem to, to reduce it down to the latest technological reference points that we have. And yeah. what if, I mean, when you really think about it, the, 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 body is sort of like a machine in the sense that there's so many things that it does on its own without any 
uh, intention behind, uh, as far as we can see. Um, and it, it takes care of itself up to a certain point, but then you have to sort of guide it and make sure that it stays within certain parameters. So it is, it is sort of like a, an organic <laughs> machine, sure. which could be simulating something much less coarse, something on a different frequency or a different vibration. So, right. So that's if a possibility. I'm, so if I'm wearing a hazmat suit is the hazmat suit my body or is that just a cover? Is that something that's covering me to protect the thing that's underneath it? Yeah. Maybe that's another way of perceiving that, that theory is that the body is designed to protect the soul. So it's, it's like the shell that you're wearing on top of the soul to keep the soul intact to keep the soul inside of this thing, but so that it has a focus, right? So, mm. but if I'm if I'm dealing with some hazardous material and I I cut a gash into the hazmat suit, the hazmat suit's not my soul. It's just the thing that is a shell over the body that's over the soul sure. that's designed to protect. The body. It's dispensable, just like your body is. Disposable. Disposable. Yeah. Doesn't isn't aren't they interchangeable? No. Dispense is to give something out. Okay. Dispensary. All like. right. Splitting hairs. <laughs> Dispensing hairs. <laughs> I think the movie that uh, I like to hearken when people are bringing up movies as like as metaphors of our existence is Cabin in the Woods. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I think that the loosh harvesting scenario, which basically was what that whole movie is about. And if right. you haven't seen it, see it. It's really, I mean, it's it's a horror movie, but there's something much more bigger behind the horror movie. Um, that it's all, I, I don't want to say it without giving it away because I, I do want to, to encourage people to see it. But I think that there's some really important, that's like the eyes wide shut of, of, horror movies in the sense that it's revealing something much, much darker than any horror scenario. See, I, I am more, I, I like the lighter energy. So I would say a, a better example would be Groundhog Day. <laughs> sure. Because when you look at the real uh, theme of that movie, it is a horror film. Sure. It's horrifying to imagine reliving the same day over and over and over again. But the the real crux of that movie, the whole point is that he stops reliving that same day when he gets it right. Yeah. No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't mean to to portray that that cabin in the woods represents all of life by any means but the aspect of it where uh there is a sort of a fear machine yeah and something lives off of that fear yeah. that just that aspect of life yeah. i don't think well, that that's what it all boils right. down to but using means. you again going back to my example using groundhog day what is keeping the machine going is his ego sure the second he steps out of his own ego and steps out of his own way that's when he wakes up from the nightmare yep. because he does he becomes impeccable he uses his energy in every single exchange that he has to its to his highest ability 
Sure. Yeah. No, I agree. We should watch that again soon. The kids hate that movie, and I find that so sweet that they hate it. They hated it. They hated it two years ago. They probably would be more open to watching it now and go, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. I've seen it hundreds of times, but it's a really beautiful film for all the right reasons. It's a good movie. Sure. So that's my crit of, that's our film corner. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we've been going on for almost 20 minutes. Thank you all so much for joining us. And uh, I really hope that you enjoyed uh, this chat. Uh, I certainly did um, and got tons of positive stuff off of it and got to meet Randy and connect with him. And it was just really good. I can't wait to have another conversation with him. Hopefully you, you benefited as well. Yeah. He, he's a righteous dude. He is a righteous dude. <laughs> In days and confused terms. Actually, that is... I can't believe you don't remember. That's a Ferris Bueller's Day Off reference. No, like every He's movie, a righteous dude. Isn't every movie in the eighties <laughs> used that at some point? Fast Times at Richmond High and Right. But I was quoting yeah. the secretary. It was uh, never my John Hughes movie to go to. It was always Breakfast Club for me. And yet we showed the kids Ferris Bueller. You wanted to. I think it's more appropriate. How I don't dare know. You? I don't know if some parts of Breakfast Club what? How dare I? You wanted to show them Ferris Bueller. You brought up Ferris Bueller. And I was like, sure, I think it's fine. But not for the reason that it's something near and dear to me and I want to share it. Listen, homie. I'm going to talk to you out of the studio. (laughs) Let's take this outside. And And some more. And keep good vibes inside. (laughs) Uh, If you would like to contact us, if you have um, guest recommendations, you know the rigmarole. Uh, that is the Melt Podcast at ProtonMail.com. And keep those emails coming. I am in school right now. I'm so freaking busy with my research project. I'm doing an artificial intelligence research project, this summer research that is really cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Uh, so I'm writing a literature review. I'm writing a, lit- a research proposal. I've got lots of stuff going on. But please have faith. When you write me an email, I will write you back. I do appreciate you, and I do love you all, and I thank you so much for being part of the realm we are coexisting in right now. It's sure. amazing. We're, we're helping to spawn a community of folks who are gathering around this subject matter and uh, resonate with it and it's been delightful and uh, I'm very appreciative of all of them and all of you who uh, are patrons much love to you much love to you all Um, yeah but if we don't get back to you it's not because we're ignoring you we just have lots of stuff going on I am volunteering at four different organizations in town Chris is working full time we've got a lot going on Uh, but we are very devoted to the melt and to the listeners and the viewers and we just thank you so much absolutely until next time ta-ta meow to hear the full length version of this episode Get access to exclusive and early episodes and participate in our monthly Zoom meetups for as little as $3 per month. Just click the Patreon link in the episode notes or visit patreon.com slash the melt podcast. 
contributing financially will help to make this podcast my full-time gig that I can devote more time to and allow me to create more content. Other ways of contributing would be giving us a favorable review or rating wherever you get your podcasts, subscribing to us on YouTube, spreading the word wherever you and your tribe congregate, or just by sending us your positive thoughts and intentions. In a quantumly intertwined and holographic multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.